Hi, this is George Thorgood. Hey, this is Pat Travers. Hey, this is Steve Lukather of Toto. Hey, this is Ryan. Hey, this is Chuck. We're in Black Top Mojo, and you're listening to Guitar Talk with Jimmy Warren. All right, everybody, Jimmy Warren here. Welcome to Guitar Talk. <laughs> so thankful that you came back around today. This is Sunday. That's right. This is our, uh, you know, we got new shows on Sunday. And today we're, you know, got Ken Haas from Reverend Guitars is going to be on the program today. It's uh, it's a pleasure talking to Ken. I tell you what, this is a guy who really knows uh, guitars. Um, he was uh, really informative and uh, interesting to talk to, and he seems like a really cool cat. And so uh, I think that you're going to get a lot out of this because uh, he is a guy who is really passionate about all things guitar. And so rather than me keep rambling on like a bumbling idiot, we're just going to get right into it. Here we go. This is my interview with Ken Haas, the president and CEO of Reverend Guitars. Jimmy Warren, this is Ken Haas from Reverend Guitars. How are you today? I'm good, buddy. How are you? I'm kicking ass and taking names. I kind of figured you were. You you look like that kind of guy. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I um actually I'm I'm gonna, I got to spend a good two hours this afternoon just playing with my pedal boards. Oh man, isn't that isn't that a blast? I, I auditioned a bunch of delay pedals this week, settled on a couple of things, and then I had to rebuild. I'm I play in three bands, and I do a different thing in each one, and so I have different pedal boards for each band, which is something that only a numbskull in this business would do, right? Yeah, right. Like, instead of, like, this is the stuff that I use and take the same stuff everywhere, I'm like... <laughs> and then I need a whole separate pedal board to do demo videos here at the shop. Right, right. And then I need a backup that I can use in everything. See, I love your philosophy. I think you and I, I think we probably could be brothers. I'm thinking. Oh, wait. I also have a board that we take to the NAMM show. Yeah. So, but that one's, that one's fairly simple. That just has um, pedals from our endorsers on it. Right. Like the Reeves Cabrels distortion pedal and the Ron Ashton fuzz pedal and stuff like that. So, right. So I got to know anyway. which delay did you settle on? Well, it depends on what band you're talking about. Okay. Okay. I, um, I know you're. No, a... I use a, I use a carbon copy delay for slapback in, in all three of my bands because I think it's the best. And mm-hmm. I think it's fun that you can have that little mod button pressed on it. Yeah. And, um, and it's just the right amount of chorus for damn near anything. Um, you never, it doesn't seem overwhelming, and every chorus pedal to me is overwhelming, but that just works right for me. And then, but what I needed was something that I could, that had a really long delay over a second so that I, I could do some whole notes in a band that I play in. And um, I got the Strymon Dig. Because oh, yeah. It was the least complicated. There yeah. were a lot of delay pedals that could do that, but they could also tune the engine of your car. Right. And I don't need that. <laughs> I just want a button that turns it on and off and yeah. a tap tempo, and that's it. I don't need anything else, you know? And it's like, it's hard to find something that, you know, because the, the, the stuff is just so overcomplicated. And I'm not an overcomplicated guy either. I just want this thing to work. But in the meantime, I have some friends at Eventide, and they sent me their time factor to play around with. Right. And I just completely lost, got lost in that thing for like a day. Yeah. Like you can do some awesome stuff with that thing. I don't see, I don't see where it fits in live. Maybe, maybe I do, but I don't know. But, um, but what a fun piece of gear that is. So we're going to be doing some demos with that here and stuff like that. I, I provide them with some guitars that they use in their demo videos and stuff. And so when I was asking around about them, about delay pedals, they just sent me one, like, That's which cool. is amazing. But then I have just sent them guitars. So, I mean, I guess it's cool. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I just want to make sure I use it for something if they're going to be that nice. Right. 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 Have you, did you try the one from Free the Tone? It's called Flight Time. No, oh my god, dude! There's so much stuff. Yeah, I know, I know, and, and and that's a pedal. It's 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 probably along the lines of the timeline is Strymon, 
to some degree because it is one of those pedals that is, you know, it could be very complex and it's, it's way overkill and you have to be, you know, a guitar genius like Andy Timmons or something, you know, in order to, you know, understand it or to even have the time to figure it out. But it's a great pedal. Right. But it is a great yeah, pedal. Yeah, yeah, You know, I, I, I settled with the one that I use the most is the Wampler, uh, uh, tape echo the original one i i just i love the sound of it it's my uh it's my go-to you know and i have yeah. i use three delays through my loop spec you know well, because i don't use reverb and i stack the delays you know in order to give me the effect you know you know what i'm talking about yeah totally yeah you know because i don't like that mushiness of reverb are you a reverb guy yeah, here and there. I guess it but just I can't really use it live. I, I can never use it live. It just doesn't it doesn't fit with my Yeah. And which is funny because I do stuff live that you would think I would have a lot of reverb on and I have very, very little. Yeah. I love the Earthquaker afterneath. Yeah. And I can sit in a room with like a super squishy high gain delay pedal, like super compressed gain and that like afterneath and just like play stupid you know <laughs> blue scales and shit it just sounds so awesome you just sound like you're some sort of god you know because it's just all well you know what it reminds me of this is gonna be oddly specific but it's true it is do you know um how old are you uh 55 and where are you from uh i'm in the chicago area you're in the chicago area okay yeah. i thought i recognized the accent my friend oh um that that uh, afterneath reminds me of the first song on the second side of Dire Straits Brothers in Arms is called Right Across the River, uh-huh. and he does this volume swell at the end, and like the chord just like hangs. Yeah, you know what I mean, and it's just so awesome. And then he comes up like within that sort of hanging reverb thing, he comes in and does this like descending riff thing, you know that that is in that's obviously in key with like all of this like digital wash, you know, which was so like popular at the time. And, and so many people use that wrong. And like, to me, like Mark really figured out how to like use that correctly because even now, like that record sounds a little dated, but it only sounds dated because of the keyboard sounds yeah. like keyboard sounds are the killer for rock music. Like you just, you hear, unless it's a Rhodes or a Hammond, you hear the keyboard and you're like, oh, that's that Oberheim from 1985, you know, that everybody had on their record in 1985. Um, but the guitar does not sound dated on that record. The guitar sounds awesome. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm well, a big fan, though, so... Oh, I, yeah. How, I, you, how can you not You don't be... even want to get me started. I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm a big fan. Yeah. I stalked that man. I've met him three times. Yeah. That's and it. every time I'm like... Bleh. Yeah, he's a he's a genius with a volume pedal. Oh yeah, yeah, he's sure. a genius with it. You know what I mean? I I've tried myself to be able to to kind of uh, work it the way that he does, and I I just can't do it. You know, I, I'm better off using my my volume knob than my pinky. You know, as opposed to a volume pedal, I just you know. But he's a genius with that thing. He's a great player, though. Oh my god. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, so so let let's do this. You know, uh, I, I know you're in multiple bands. You, you're running a company that makes excellent guitars. I actually uh, own a Volcano. I got one of your Woo-hoo. I got one of your V's. I, I I love it. I do. The only I wish I would have got the one you guys had a signature model that was a V and it had uh, three P90s. Remember, it was orange. Yeah, that was. Ron Ashton. Yeah, I wish I would have got that one. I don't know why. I just I always thought that guitar would be so cool to play. I'm a, I'm a big fan of P90s, and you guys use a lot of them. So, but let's step back and let's talk about you know you're in all this gear and all this stuff now. What got you interested in the guitar to begin with? Um, you know it's very funny. I just I just posted about this on Facebook and Instagram. Um, Well, I've been kind of weird about sharing my private gear stash for a while, you know, Um, and uh, I don't know why. I think it's because, you know, I run this, I I, I run Reverend and, and 
and Railhammer, and I want people to be excited about Redwind and Railhammer. And, and right. so for me, like posting pictures of my Fenders and my Gibsons and my GNLs and my, you know, whatever, like who cares? Like everybody has those guitars, you know what I mean? And I always think people look to me and they just want to see this one thing over and over again. And then I started realizing, well, you know, it might be kind of fun to start showing some of the stuff that like influences me, you know what I mean? Some of the stuff that put me here. So um, I was born in 1969, and when I, through the 70s, my uncle Mike was a guitar player. Um, he was, uh, he was older than I, uh, but he was, he was 10 years younger than my dad, so, and, but he was a monster player, and he played in a whole lot of bands in the Detroit area in the 60s and 70s, and, um, um, he did some shows with Little Richard actually in the late '60s, and he did some touring with a couple of couple of guys. And um, I don't know, man. He was just a real interesting character. He toured with the American touring version of of Herman's Hermits, which was basically like a backing band for the main guys. You know what I mean? And like he just he just did some weird eclectic shit or whatever. And he was a great player. And um, he, he had battled alcoholism, and depression, and direction issues and ended up at midnights in a factory by 1980 and was just a miserable man he took his own life and when i was 10 years old and of course that just had such a huge impact on me because he was like my cool musician uncle you know what i mean yeah like it just it, it like it sort of changed things for me you know as, as it would a, a 10 year old kid you know right. um, dealing with the death in the family like that and so my grandparents did this like thing um, he had gotten rid of most of his gear by then, um, which is, you know, it is what it is. He had a piano, upright piano left, and he had a nylon string acoustic guitar, which is this, like, really, really cool Japanese-made nylon string from the 70s. And I can't think of the brand name without looking at, at the thing, but um, it is just a super well-made, very resonant, very beautiful guitar. And... Um, and then uh, he had a 68 Fender Telecaster and a 65 Twin, and the Twin was had the factory EVs loaded into it, and that was his main, I mean, that was his amp for 15 years. You know, he bought it new. And, um, and then the 68 Tele, <laughs> he had a, there's pictures of him with a 330, I believe. Mm. And he took the neck pickup, which is a PAF with the sticker on the back, out of the Gibson and routed the telly with like a screwdriver. I mean, the route underneath the pickguard is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and and put that PAF in the neck position of the 68 telly. And that was the guitar I learned to play on. And, it, and um, you know, my grandparents did the thing where they like the guitar was under the bed till I was 15, 16 years old. And I used to go over to their house and I would pull the guitar out, you know, and they did the thing where they didn't like change his room for a long time and stuff. It was really creepy and sad and all that stuff that all of that is. And that's not what we're here to talk about. That's a whole other conversation. But I used to pull that guitar out from under his bed and just sit on the floor and hold it. And I didn't know how to play 12 year old me. I was just holding uncle Mike's guitar. I didn't know what a Telecaster was. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know any of that. And I just knew like, this is special, this thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, and then I started to learn how to play, and they gave me the nylon string at first, and I took some lessons on it, and it didn't inspire me, and I went and got my own electric, which was like a $120 Kramer, you know, that wouldn't stay in tune, and I tried to beat around on that, and then eventually my grandfather just gave me the telly. And then, of course, the telly didn't do the rock like I wanted it to do. I'm like, why won't it make that why won't this sound like a Les Paul? Because, you know, when you're 13, you don't know. <laughs> I mean, the bands that I'm listening to sound like this, and this is an electric guitar, but I can't get this guitar to sound like this. And and then I discovered the, you know, the subtle nuances of things and ended up getting other guitars. And I, you know, and I went through my Ibanez phase and my Strat phase and my LP phase and my G&L phase and and, and always kind of, always preferred the bolt-ons, always been a guy that likes bolt-on guitars with bolt-on necks and humbuckers. Mm -hmm. um, and then one thing led to another, and of course that led me to Joe. 
And uh, and then I really liked what Joe was doing, and he was doing both out next with humbuckers, and then that relationship turned into putting me eventually where I am now. But what started it all off was my love for that 68 Telecaster, and I got it out the other day, and I took a bunch of pictures of it and posted them online because it really is very relict. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mike, Mike played a lot. I mean, he was one of, you know, he had seven or eight gigs a week for ever and ever and ever. And um, and the guitar just shows it, you know, and it's it's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and now I know how to make it work. <laughs> now I know how to get those sounds, you know what I mean? Now I realize that you got to push an amp with, with the guitar like that to get it to sound like that, you know what I mean? As opposed to, uh, you know, upfront gain or whatever. And uh, now that I've got it figured out, it's awesome. So, so would you say at that time when you were, you know, sitting on the floor holding that guitar that that was kind of the time that you know was really defining you know a direction for you you know that you were going to be a guitar player in one one shape or one form or another well yeah and yeah. and it wasn't just that it, again it's because this week has just been such a whirlwind of stuff and then what got me thinking about that was this, the whole Van Halen thing that yeah. everybody's sort of dealing with now and everybody's sort of gra- grasping with his legacy and what it means and, and who all he inspired and, and why and how. And I, um, and for me, when I first started getting into this, I used to get the magazines and just stare at the pictures and I used to stare at that stupid Kramer ad with him holding that white Kramer with the, you know, this is simply the best guitar available today or whatever the quote is or whatever. But I used to just sit and stare at that. And, and, and I, it's always been like some guys just, and I, I, I know plenty of them. I'm in bands with some guys like this who just play circles around me, mm-hmm. but they don't understand the gear at all. And it, and it's not important to them. You know what I mean? Like you give them anything and they just like, oh yeah, this will work. And then they play and it's awesome. You know what I mean? Or you've got that yeah. guy that's just like, yeah, I've got this, you know, I've got this semi hollow and this tube screamer and this, you know, little fender amp. And I just, I've done every gig like this for the last three years or whatever. And then of course there's people that are just so in tune with the gear and it's all they do. It's all they talk about. It's all they know. And it's, you know, all the, the gear acquisition syndrome and all of those things. And I love those guys too. I, that's all interesting stuff. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to strike a balance, you know? Yeah. Um, but I'm surrounded by it all the time. I mean, I, I, you know, one of my favorite things, of course, is the NAMM show and going and seeing all the new stuff and doing all this, all that stuff. I still love the guitars and I still love seeing what people, what creative people are coming up with and what they're doing. And, and um, it still interests me. And I'm friends with a lot of my competitors because I think they make cool stuff, you know? And it's like, you know, every once in a while, I'll blow, you know, I'll be like, hey, man, I want to buy that. What do you mean? Um, there's some builder from North Carolina at a guitar show years ago. I don't even know if he's still around. A guy named Alex Scott. And he was making some really cool guitars. And, I, I, and he was across from us at Summer Nam in like 2000. 13 or something or whenever you know and and uh and i just was I, I stared at this guitar for the whole guitar show and finally i just walked over there and i'm like i can i buy this really yeah this is cool <laughs> shit you know and i've got it here at the shop it's just a, it's just a cool guitar man yeah. you know i get it i understand what the guy was trying to do i understand the influences of his instrument i i just i just got it and i like it and so Lately, I've been posting a lot of pictures of, of guitars from other manufacturers and things that I like and things that inspire me because, I don't know, I think it's neat. Um, and people are still doing some neat stuff. And, and there's, there's, believe me, there's people that I'm not, you know, fans of either or whatever. But, but uh, I mean, for the most part, everybody in this business, you know, with the exception of, of a couple people, everybody in this business is just really cool. And they're in this business for the right reason. And so there's no reason to be shitty to one another you know and uh and so here we are yeah well you know i think that's really cool that uh you know even though you run uh you know a successful company that makes guitars and has their own line of guitars and you know all these great artists that are, are playing your stuff and that that you know you still 
you know, you're, 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 you're still passionate about gear, period. You know, it, I, it does, it always surprises me when I run across a guitar player. And I've talked to some, you know, really, really famous guitar players that could care less about the guitar. To them, it's really just, um, uh, you know, a tool to, to make a good song. You know, absolutely. You know, which is cool too, but it surprises me. You know, it's like the first time oh, yeah. I had somebody that I thought, "Oh my God, this guy is is tremendous," and then all and he tells me, "I don't really care about the guitar too much. I just use it to make yeah. the song." And I'm like, whoa, whoa, "Whoa, I would have never thought that." <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. You know who's like that? That surprises me is, uh, and maybe he's changed now, but he was like that a lot. Is uh, Dan Auerbach from the Black Keys? Oh yeah, he's, he's got a. He's got a couple of reverends, and Joe, like, did some custom stuff for him. Like, Joe, you know, wound some pickups in specific ways and did a few things for him. And um, he recorded a lot of their record attack and release for the Reverend Club King with uh, what, at the time, we had these pickups called Revtrons. And Joe had these, like, hot-rotted Revtrons, and he did all this stuff for him and and, uh, and set the Bigsby up a certain way and everything. And, and he we just... He just raved to us about how great the guitar was when he was recording the record and was telling us all about, you know, how it's all over the guitar, or whatever. And then never toured with it. Yeah. <laughs> never, like, and ne- like never, to, never. To, that guitar was just like never to be heard from again or whatever. And you know, and I'm, years ago I tried to approach him about doing something, you know, like working together in some way. You know, and him and Joe working together in some way to yeah. design something or whatever. And his response was, "I just grab whatever's next to me and make it work." Yeah, you know, and I mean, this is a guy who could play anything. Yeah, you know, and anybody would give him anything, and he's just like, eh, whatever, <laughs> you know. But but he also writes some brilliant, brilliant songs, yeah. and 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 is able to you know um, put those ideas out there. So I, in in a sense, he's doing it right for him, right? So yeah. whatever, yeah. you know, as as opposed to like a you know. Uh, you know, an Eddie Van Halen or a Stevie Vai type character where, like, you know, back in the day, in the 80s, when they were developing the style of of guitar playing, they didn't have instruments that could keep up with what they were doing. And so the instrument itself became the focus as they needed something that they couldn't find, you know, which is very interesting. And, and I think we're we're in an era like that now with some of the digital stuff, for sure. You know, but as far as, like, the mechanics of the guitar are concerned, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of extremism going on out there on the instrument itself. It's, it's what people are doing with the signal that's just so mind-blowing. Um, and, uh, and I find all of that very fascinating, too, and it's an interesting thing to address. And, and from my perspective, you know, as a, as a manufacturer, um, the idea is to give these people a really, a really good platform and a really good, strong signal that they can use to then manipulate uh, once they get it going into their amplifier. And I think the Railhammer pickups are sort of uh, are defining that, at least for us right now. I, Joe certainly came up with a pickup design that, that is he's probably the only one that's really done anything with the passive humbucker in this you know in the last 25 years yeah so, um and it's doing the in the real hyper pickups are doing really well for us the clarity is amazing so so, so when, a lot of fun so when did the rail hammer come out i mean when did you guys start uh using so I, the brief timeline with us is is Naylor founded Reverend in 96 with the patent on the original body design. Mm-hmm. And he made those original guitars between 96 and 2005. Um, and then we started making the switch over to more traditional stuff and solid body electrics. I worked for Joe um, as an outside sales rep and, uh, and I did some artist relations stuff more or less, all I did was just go to shows with him and help him sell because he wasn't like a closer, a yeah. sales salesman guy, you know. And I can be like real salesmany, and um, <laughs> and so I used to go to Nam shows with him and go to you know like the Dallas guitar shows, Dallas and Arlington, and been to the Chicago show a few times out there. And uh, what is that uh, out west of town there? Saint something? Saint Charles? Yeah, been out there a few times, <laughs> and, uh, and then of course Philly and. And uh, so we used to do those shows together in the early 2000s. 
And then um, when the line started to pick up in about 2005, 2006, when we started doing some of the, the product that we're doing now, the chargers and the jet streams, senseis, things of that nature, uh, volcanoes, of course, um, he the need arose for me to come in full time and and be a sales director, so which was kind of awesome. Um, after you know goofing around with him for five or six years, I finally got the opportunity to come work full time, and then the economic slowdown in two thousand eight um, really affected MI hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you remember, the guitar was dead, yeah. all that shit. And uh, but we did lose about a third of our dealers, and because we were you know just doing small independent dealers at the time, and it was kind of tough, and and um, and so Joe uh, Joe had ridden the roller coaster a number of times, and was just really sick of being at the helm of of the actual day to day running of the business, taxes, rent, payroll, all of that stuff, and. And as we had to get small in order to survive, he just really wanted to design guitars. He didn't want to do all the other crap, you know? And so he started looking for somebody to, 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 to sell the company to. Um, and we talked to a couple other brands here and there. Uh, he, you know, he tried a few ideas and nothing really materialized. And after listening to his plight, you know, like a company tried to, to buy a to to buy us, there was a, some there was a company that was very very interested, and they would say things like, you know, Joe, we're going to keep you on to design guitars, and Ken, you have all the you know dealer relationships and a lot of the artist relationships and stuff, so we're going to keep you on and blah. But there were, we've seen companies change hands in this business. I mean, one of the advantages for me being at every Nam show since 1998 was you see people come and go, and you sort of look and you learn from people's mistakes and stuff, and. They, my thing with that was I didn't want to just be on a, a brand to some company that owned a bunch of brands because that company has salespeople and artists and all that stuff. And eventually Joe and I would have been out because they know, you know what I mean? They have yeah. their own ideas or whatever. And it just, the thought of it just disgusted me because Joe worked so hard to get it to where it was. And it wasn't, it, you know, I didn't want to lose that relationship of, of Joe and I working together to make this thing happen. So my wife and I came up with a way to buy the company from him. And we hired him back to design guitars. And he's got a stake in all of this still. And he does, he's the one that works with the artists to make the guitar realizations happen. Um, one of the things I'm most proud of in our business is that when we make a signature guitar for an artist, we make the guitar that they're actually using. We don't go out and like slap somebody's name on something that we do. Joe sits with Billy Corgan and Joe sits with Reeves Cabrels and he designs these instruments with the artists for the artist to take out on tour. And that when you buy this guitar, you are buying the guitar that like, if you love the Reeves Cabral Space Hawk and you're a big fan of the Cure, the Space Hawk that we sell is the same guitar that Reeves plays with the Cure. There's no difference. And so it's, it's, it's a really cool thing. It's a really cool talent that Joe has that I do not. (laughs) So, so we, I wanted to keep the pairing, the two of us works, you know. Um, and so we, we were able to do that and, and bring Joe in to design guitars. And basically what happened was the checkbook went from his desk to mine, uh, as well as, you know, the tears and the anguish and the toil. Um, and, uh, at that point, then Joe started to... Now I'm going to answer your question. Okay. <laughs> At that point, <laughs> Joe started to realize ideas that he had been kicking around in his head for years that because of the rent and the payroll and the taxes, he never was able to get to actually sit and do the R&D yeah. and get these things done. And the rail hammer was one of the first things. He always... Um, he had this idea in his head, like, I, I say this a lot, and I, I, I don't want it to sound as harsh as it sounds, because I'm a fan of everybody that I'm going to use in this description. But if you think of how crushing Dimebag Daryl's rhythm sound was, it was just awesome. And it would, like, hit your chest, you know? You still, I hear a song like, you know, Walk, Come On, XM, Liquid Metal. And uh, and you just you crank it. It just the rhythm is so great, and it's because the blades 
take the small slice of the magnetic field created by the strings and you get this like natural compression, this very percussive sound when you're palm muting and playing with a lot of gain, and it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, of course, those blades underneath of the plain strings make, when you're soloing, it sounds pretty shrill. And Joe thought that he could counterbalance that by using the oversized slugs underneath of the plain strings and only using the blades under the wound strings. And it makes for an unusual-looking pickup. But um, So he started experimenting around with it, and, uh, and sure enough, he was right. And so we do multiple versions of this, of course, with different, like we do some brass covers on Lake Bob Balches, which sort of changes the tone a little bit, and different different magnets, ceramic on some, Alnico on others, different gauge wire and windings and things of that nature to achieve different outputs. There's a lot of different versions of this pickup, but ultimately, um, the the clarity, and it's not just a high-gain thing. You know, it, it's so funny because our... Um, the the neck versions of these pickups are the best sounding jazz pickups I have ever heard. But jazz guys just look at them and they're just mortified. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't play that. You know, if we, 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 I've always thought we should put like a plain cover on one and just like sneak them into some jazz guitars and just watch, like watch people's faces. You know what I mean? Because it really does the thing, the clean tone as well. You never get a farty bottom end. Yeah. You know what I mean? It holds the bottom end so nice and tight. It's a really, really cool idea, and and it's totally passive and easy, you know? Yeah. Um, and especially in this day and age where there's a lot of very, very fancy pickup systems out there, you yeah. know, and technology and stuff like that for, you know, us to come out and be like, we have actually broken new ground with a super old design. Check it out. You know, it's cool. I think it's fun. Yeah, no, I, I think it's I think it's really cool, you know, that you guys are, uh, you know, still innovating. You know, right. yeah, you know, you're you're thinking, uh, you know, I, I heard a story one time. I don't know how true it is, but I heard a story one time, and I I've interviewed him, and I didn't dare ask him because I was afraid to sound like an idiot. Uh, but I, I heard a story one time that Steve Vai puts a guitar in the center of the room and walks around it and tries to think of different ways to approach it. And I was, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know if it's true or not. You know, I always thought, it was, really, I always thought it was really cool, but I, I, I always find it, you know, uh, you know, exciting when people are, are uh, you know, just, I don't know, willing to push the envelope, you know, not go along with, you know what's normal or what people are using now and they uh they try you know various things and they usually end up come up with some some pretty cool stuff so do you guys do you guys get together and sit down and you know if you come up with an idea do you guys kick it around is joe the guy who basically is the only one designing or you know is it a team effort yes joe no, Joe is the guy that is basically the only one designing. I mean, unless he's working on an artist model with the artist, and and then and then Joe will collaborate with the artist uh, to to come up with the final product. You know, if the artist is looking for a certain tone or a certain thing, right. um, then Joe works with the artist to do that. I don't do much of that. Um, I sell what is presented yeah. <laughs> to us. Now, Joe, I mean, Joe watches the marketplace and stuff like that and says to me, you know, I have some cool guitars coming out next year or whatever. And he's like, I, you know, I think this, this is going to be a thing. You know, we should do this or that, this or that. And then I, I look at it and I go, hell yeah, let's do that. You know, um, sometimes, sometimes it's driven by dealers, but I've had better success. When Joe sort of drives that train, like a good example of that is, um, um, and this is back before I owned the company. This is just working under under Naylor's purveyance. But when we were, when we first started doing set neck instruments, we did a model called the Roundhouse and a model called the Daredevil. And the Roundhouse was a single cutaway, and the Daredevil was a double cutaway, and they were reminiscent of another brand's guitars. Yeah. And one of the reasons why we did those is because in 2006, 7, 8, this other brand that shall not be mentioned um, 
dropped all their independent dealers and went and told them they couldn't sell online, told them they couldn't, you know, advertise, told them that they couldn't do all this, did all this weird stuff with them, and then told them, but in, and then told five or six dealers that they could do all those things. And so they were, all these independent dealers dropped their line and wanted something that was reminiscent of their stuff. And there had been some things established already through lawsuits with other companies and stuff of how, what you could do, you know what I mean, or whatever. And Joe, Joe tried to put his spin on those two models. And in the end, we released them. And then Joe just never liked the look of them on the racks in the shop. Yeah. He would walk by them and just be like, I, I just don't like these. Yeah. They're not me, you know? And then after looking at them for a year and a half, two years, he's like, you know, if we took these features from this one and these features from this one and then we put our sort of trademark offset waste on it, we would have this. And that was how he developed the Sensei back in 2008. And the Sensei was a reverend. And right away we looked at it and we're like, oh yeah, that's a reverend. You know, that's not this or that and and we were really really happy with that sort of approach and we have sold a lot of sensei since then it's been sort of our signature set neck platform which is great i mean and we have artists that have that like the platform so much that their guitars are you know based on that platform uh reeves from the cure his dirt his dirt bike guitar is based on the sensei platform uh, robin frank from nine inch nails his signature guitar is a sensei, uh, even Bob Balch from Fu Manchu is sort of a modified sensei without the binding and a little different, um, little different edge, you know, cutting or whatever, but, uh, mm. um, the beveling and stuff. But, you know, it's, so it's, 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 it's interesting, but it all comes from Naylor. I don't, I don't design guitars. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I like, I know what I like, you know, uh, and, and sometimes I have just some ideas based on, my dealers coming to me and wanting something in particular. Um, the, we do a hum single single version of our six gun for Wildwood guitars. And that was, Wildwood likes to do um, exclusive runs with us where they will order X number of guitars that are, you know, and they, they do this, geez, this year they've been doing a run a month um, yeah. that's exclusive to them. Uh, every month they have a new release, which is crazy, but they do really well for us. They're a great dealer. And um, and they um, they wanted to do the HSS thing, which isn't anything that Naylor ever wanted to address. He's like, well, that's just not our brand, you know. And I was like, well, these guys really want to do it, and they they want it, you know, as an exclusive to them, and they're going to market it, and they're going to do all this stuff. And Joe's like, oh, okay. And then we sort of came up with a way way to do it. And Joe came up with a wiring thing. Um, one of the, one of the, I think this is neat. I, don't know, I hope I'm not boring no, no, whoever's cool. listening with this. But, but um, I think it's kind of interesting because one of the features on the Reverend guitars is what we call bass contour control, which actually removes low frequencies in a similar way that the tone control removes high frequencies. And it, in, in our thinking, it eliminates the need for, like, coil taps on humbucker guitars. So you don't have, you can get a whole array of, of tones from a humbucker without having ugly mini switches and things like that on your guitar and keeping the pickguard kind of clean, right? And mm-hmm. so the, the third control will just roll, it rolls away low frequencies, and it's just a, you know, I mean, it's, it's done with a capacitor, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, but it, it, it's effective and it works. And Joe experimented for a long time to find the right values of, to use to get the effect that he wanted. And so with that being said, on the hum single single guitar, the bass contour control only works on the humbucker because a traditional vintage wound single coil, you don't really want to remove more bass from it. Yeah. <laughs> and so you yeah. can get a really cool quacky sort of tone from having the um in the number two position with the humbucker in the middle single coil and rolling out the bass from the humbucker it does a really cool thing um and then the other the neat thing about the bass contour too is when you're just using it on a on a humbucker guitar um even with the bass contour rolled all the way off both coils are still on Mm. So it's still humbucking, yeah. even though you're getting that sort of thinner single coil esque sound. Um, we like to say it changes the voice of the pickups more than it, you know what I mean. 
then it alters it or removes bass or whatever. It sort of changes the voice. (laughs) Well, you know what? You guys have, I mean, you really do have quite a few uh, different models, you know? You ain't kidding. You got you got a lot of different models. So I, I want to ask a crazy question: If a guy like me was to contact, I, I know you guys have, you know, your set models, and you got a lot of them, you know. And I've always, you know, I've always been interested in like the uh, Rick Vito and the the uh, Pete Anderson guitars. Those those have always been appealing to me in that. But I was wondering, can a guy just contact Reverend and say, hey, you know, I like this guitar, but I'd like to have you know, this kind of neck, or I'd like to have these kind of pickups in it, would you would you alter that? Would you build something like that for them? Or would you say that, you know, you guys are are beyond that now? Well, it's not even that we're beyond that. We've never really been able to effectively do that. Yeah. So so Naylor does all the design work, like I, like I was saying, right? And then we have the guitars manufactured for us by a small factory called Mir Music in South Korea. And Mir builds for us, and they build for a handful of other smaller brands. Um, we're probably their largest customer. Um, we are their largest customer. And they manufacture the guitars, and I bring the guitars over here about once a month. I bring X number of guitars over, and and, and then we they run through our shop here in Toledo, Ohio, um, and my techs set them up, and they truly set them up. I mean, this isn't like a uh, we open the box and go, oh, this one looks good, and then we put it in another <laughs> box and then we ship it out. I mean, around. this is a, we're, I mean, we do, you know, neck adjustments, adjustments nut slots, uh, fret ends if necessary, uh, set the intonation. There's a bunch of other little tweaks and a bunch of other little things that we check and do here. Um, and then, like, even pickup heights and, and pull piece heights and things like that. We have all this sort of dialed in. Um, and the goal is, of course, we're not the first ones to do this. We just happen to be doing it effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, this was, this was Ibanez's plan in the 70s when they came over here and because they saw a need. You know, and, and their whole plan was we're going to hang these guitars. And, and this was when people were really just downright racist when it came to, like, Asian products. You know, in the 70s, I mean, it was brutal. And yeah. Japan was, and, and Ibanez was bringing over Japanese guitars, and they're like, well, if we're going to compete over here, we better make better guitars. And they set up their shop in Pennsylvania that set up all the instruments when they came through uh, was Bethlehem. And and all the guitars, so if you walked into a music store in 1978 and you 19... 79 and you saw that guitar that Steve Miller was playing or that guitar that Bob Weir was playing and you picked it up off the wall in that music store and you compared it to the products from the big two at the time, it blew away um, because it was set up and ready to go. And so we just, we, we, we want to try to do something like that. You know, we've been mm-hmm. able to effectively do that now. And um, so all of that being said, that process, there's no customization point in that process we are selling the guitars that we are having made for us and you know i don't order i don't order you know i certainly don't order them by the hundreds i mean we're a small company dude i'm doing mm-hmm. for 300 400 500 guitars a month i mean this is not it's not huge it's great i mean that is amazing you know what i mean yeah. and i still go i go I, I just can't believe we're doing this well you know i'm, I'm blown away by it but, I mean, Fender does that in a day, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a completely yeah, different right. kind of thing. And so um, so there's not a, a point where I can put in, you know, an extra pickup or, or, or put you do this neck shape or, oh, I really like this, but with a reverse headstock or whatever, because one of the ways that we keep the cost down is by having that process streamlined. You know, mm-hmm. every... Uh, that kind of stuff, you know, you're talking custom shop stuff there, and that's just not something that we can effectively do. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes it's just not cost, you know, like you said, it's not cost effective in that. But, yeah. you know, i gotta be, I, I got to be honest, uh, uh, I, you know, I have, you know, I was a Fender guy for years, you know, I've got a lot of them. You know, and I've got, you yeah. know, some vintage stuff. And same with same with uh, Gibson. You know, I've got, 
I can say their names. I've got uh, several. <laughs> uh, I've got. I can se- say the names too. I just choose not. Yeah, to. I'll talk about Fender all you want to. It's the other one that yeah, I don't talk. But about. I've got I've got several. You know, older. You know, uh, Pauls and V's and stuff like that. But I wouldn't buy a new one. In because uh, every time that I've gone to look at them, in you know, and spend some time with one, I, I always end up hating the neck. I do, you know, and most of the places that you go to, they're not set up, and you know what I mean. And the the frets are always really sharp, and you know, the necks just feel I don't know. You got to do work to them in order to get them right. Right. And and just to get back to what you're saying, like the volcano that I bought. I'm going to be honest, I got it, it played great, it sounded great, I didn't have to do anything to it. But it's the same for, like, uh, for me, some of the Japanese guitars that I play, which, you know, has really been, you know, one of my preferences because they're made so damn good, you know, and they play so, oh, yeah. so friggin' great, and I don't have to do anything to them. They come to me and they're set up, and it isn't like the old days of, you know, going and buying a, a Strat and... You know, some guys like a strap. You know, most of the times when I get them, I got to do something to them. I got to change the pickups. I got to change the wiring harness. I got to change the pots or, you know what I mean? I got to do something to it because, I don't know, for me, it's always something isn't right. And I think part of that is, is because I think that they just, you know, they're making so many of them because they're, they're I guess they're popular and people are buying them in, in the droves and stuff like that, but. You know, the whole quality, if, if you want it to be that kind of attention to be paid to it, well, shit, you got to go to the custom shop and you're going to spend three grand, four grand, you know, to get a guitar where I can buy one of yours or I can buy one of the other Japanese guitars and spend a fraction of what I would pay in a custom shop and have a guitar that's, you know, just as good, if not better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, that's the plan. And, and I mean, and we want to keep it affordable. I, you, yeah. And we want, it, we, we balance this, this quality versus affordability issue because I mean, again, just like the customer, right, can spend as much as you want to on a guitar. I mean, you can spend, I, first off, it's an amazing time to be a guitar player because, you know, I was, I mentioned that hundred and, $139.99 Kramer that I had that I couldn't get to stand to in the 80s. And that guitar was a piece of shit. And there was no excuse for that guitar. And you don't see those anywhere. Yeah. They were junked. You can spend the equivalent in today's dollars, which would be, what, two, $280, something like that, mm-hmm. $300, um, and get a damn nice guitar, yeah. something that was really well made. And I, sometimes I am blown away by like how good like a Squire is. I'll be like, holy shit, it's a nice guitar, yeah. you know? Um, and then, and then of course there's, so you're at that end or you can spend, yeah, I mean, you can spend $15,000 on a custom shop instrument. There's stuff that I see that I'm just like, yeah. I can't believe anybody is spending this kind of money for wooden wires, but they are and good for them. I mean, the, the, the high end of the business is something to aspire to. It drives the market. I'm glad those companies are there. I have a couple of very, very nice, um, I have a couple of Pensa guitars. I just love it. Like Rudy Pensa and I are friends and they sell Reverend out there in New York City. Yeah. And again, my Knopfler, my Knopfler thing, you yeah. know, um, I have a couple of beautiful Pensa guitars and they're, they're just so nice. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And so you can spend as much as you want on a guitar too. Um, we're trying to keep that mid-level price thing which for some of the features that we're offering has become difficult and most of our stuff has crept up over a grand now. You know what I mean? I mean, we have a lot of guitars at $899 and $999 for sure, but we currently have more guitars over $1,000 than we ever have. Um, and we're selling some stuff over 1500 now, which is I never thought would happen. But uh, like we're doing those guitars with Greg Talk with the Fishman pickups in them. And yeah. I mean, when you put $400, you put $400 for the pickups in something, it costs 1500 bucks. You know, and that's just the way it is. I mean, those, those pickups aren't cheap. So, and, but they're cool, you know, yeah. and it works and it's part of a whole system. So what, in, in maintaining that sort of quality, one of the, we went to this, this builder in Korea for a reason because Miri, I mean, the, the companies that he works with, he works with companies that make high end guitars. And it is a nice place.
place and you pick up our guitars and it doesn't it doesn't feel cheap it feels good i mean they they hang with stuff that costs two and three times what they cost and nailer is very very specific in his design he's looking for a very very specific thing and this company is able to realize that and they are able to realize it in a way that that we're still able to keep them affordable because of how we order them because we order you know x number of each model and color and things of that nature um but the thing to understand about working with that company is they like the average age of their employee is over 50 because south korea has has become so i mean this idea that they're not the, the youth in south korea are just like the youth here in the states and people aren't working with their hands, and they're working with computers, and they're doing stuff. And so these are a bunch of experienced men that are making these guitars, and where, I don't, you know, I don't know what that means for their business in 10 years or 12 years as we all start to retire, but I don't know what that means for a lot of the businesses here, you know, it's, right. where everybody's in the same boat. And these guys are in that same boat. So it's not, you know, I, I always I get upset with the, with the idea that, well, you're building guitars in Asia, so you must have a bunch of 15-year-old girls building guitars for you blah 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 <laughs> come on that's just not it's just not reality based you know right. um and and so but there's there's a, a uh there's always a little you know there's always something like sometimes we like we've chosen to use karina for the bodywood on all of our guitars right mm-hmm. it sounds great and it's lightweight but karina comes with its own set of problems um karina dents easy and before it's finished and and it there's there's things that that about it and it 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 soaks in paint and sealer and one of the things that we want to do is we want to put a very thin finish on all the guitars in order to keep them resonant right because the sound is the most important thing we could cover these guitar bodies in a layer of plastic poly coating right and have them be flawless but that's not what we're going for we are making guitars to be played and we want the guitars to sound fantastic so we try to strike this balance where i mean obviously the guitars are finished in a poly because that's what we use on the planet now you know i mean the lack guitars that are finished in lacquer are very expensive for a reason you pay a lot of taxes to buy lacquer because of the pollutants and things of that nature and it's just the reality i'm not trying to make a political statement that's the way it is now you know, hmm. and these are the confines with which we have to work. Um, so we put a very thin poly finish on these guitars, and so sometimes the little the the dents that occur, the little things that that appear naturally in the carina, as you sand the body down, you find more. You know what I mean? And to get like a perfectly flat surface, yeah, we ninety nine percent of the time they're fine. But sometimes we'll ship a guitar and you'll see a little bit of an imperfection underneath of the clear coat or whatever. But for what we're trying to achieve and the price range we're trying to achieve, we think that that's okay. Because we're making a vibe, man. We're making a cool product, you know. Um, and so we do the best to chase that stuff down. But but uh, but that's part of what it is. It's part of the reason why the guitar costs, you know, the, why the guitar is in the, uh, you know, the 800 to $1,500 range. As opposed to being... You, in the three thousand dollar and up range, guitars should be perfect, yeah. right? And they are. Yeah. I see what people are doing. You seen? Have you seen like the modern Tom Anderson guitars and the modern Sir guitars? And that, I mean, these they're oh, yeah. expensive, but they are. I mean, they're they're flawless. You know, that's that, and that that's amazing. That is a really really cool thing. And uh, and we're we're working in you know that direction while still keeping the price down, which I think is 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 cool it's the goal you know and right. um and it's a lofty one but uh we're having fun doing it damn it <laughs> well i i think i think your price point is is right on target for for you know most players you know um that aren't beginners you know most guys that are actually you know out there playing or aspiring to play or even guys that are touring and stuff i mean you know that's typically the ballpark that i look for is anywhere from that thousand to you know, the fifteen hundred to seventeen hundred dollar range. You know, I, I I recently, you know, just over the last year or so, I bought a few uh, prestige Ibanez, you know, the Japanese ones. You know, which are high dollar. You know, they're almost three thousand dollars or around three thousand dollars in that. And you're exactly right; they're completely flawless. <laughs> you know, there's you can't you couldn't you know there's there's nothing wrong yeah. with them in that. But you know, I think most people that are out there. 
you know, like I think your target audience is, you know, guys like me, you know, that are, are players. And, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that's totally what we're looking yeah. for. Yeah, and not beginners and players. And you want something that's got character to it because everybody's got a Fender. Everybody's got a Gibson. You know, you know, a lot of people got Gretsch or, you know, even Ibanez. You know, everybody's got that. And, uh, and so it's nice to have, you know, there's some guitars, you know, in the market like yours that are, are unique. They're different. They're, they're distinct, you know, and they're built for, for players. And, uh, boy, I commend you on it, man. That's a, that's a big, it's a big task, you know, to, you know, to, to, especially as many, if you don't, you know, pardon my, my retail sales, so many different SKUs. <laughs> you got yeah, so many, buddy. You got so no, it's crazy. Skews. It's, it's great. It, and it's, it's too much. It's above and beyond at this point, honestly. It's, we're, we're, and it's hard to taper stuff back because every time we go to taper stuff back, it's like, it has its own fan base. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, it's like, oh, stop making that. It's the artists' guitars. We have these long relationships with artists, you know, and they and it's great. And, yeah. uh You know, we've been making the Pete Anderson hollow body for thirteen years. Yeah, I was gonna say that's been um, around a long time. You know, and 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 the Reeves Cabrels, uh, the Reeves Cabrel hollow body, we've been making for yeah thirteen years. Yeah. So shit, the Andersons fourteen years now. Um, and uh, and I mean, we just we have such great relationships with these guys that we just and the guitar keeps selling. Yeah. You know, which is a thing, which is a testament to Joe and and the design as well. And, yeah, I mean, the guitars have grown over the years. We're offering the Reeves with the Sustaniac now, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, you know, and I didn't even have the capability to do that when we started making the Reeves model. But now we've grown to where we have enough text that we can do, like, in, installs like that. I mean, and that's a production thing. We do it in one color. You know, here it is. Uh, and we only make you know, four to six of them a month or whatever, and I'm backordered on them for like six months, but they, that's all the time we have to do, you know, the routing and the installs on that system, and so we just, you know, just run them through, and it's a cool thing, and, and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I still, I still love it, man, I still, like, get, like, even today, we were talking about the stupid pedalboard thing when you, when we first jumped on the call earlier, you know, it was, like, kind of fun, like, oh, I got pedals. See what they do or whatever. And, you know, we've been very, very fortunate. Um, we sold a lot of guitars during the whole COVID thing and, 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 uh, and which is great. So I, you know, I tried to sort of, you know, help out some, some people that needed some, some help out along the way. And, and we've been, you know, hiring people to do some demos and hiring people to do things of that nature and I bought a Rolla amp from the guy that makes those Rolla amps he does like a bot ball signature model amp I bought this head KT66's holy shit yeah. this thing is just awesome and it's so much fun to like I don't know man just to like have you know have that stuff <laughs> and do demo videos with it and stuff and I wish I could bring in uh, more people you know once this, we get some of these travel bands lifted and I'm able to get some people in here. I've got some fun stuff in here for some of my artists to do demo videos with. Well, it, it's, it's uh, going to be. Yeah, it's really cool, though, that, uh, you know, that, that you're a player and you own the company and, you know, you're that ex- excited and that passionate about, about gear. You know, once again, it's, it's always kind of odd when I run across, because I do run across people that own companies that build amps or pedals or guitars and they're not players. You know, and uh, I got a guy in Georgia that builds custom guitars in his little shop outside of his house. You know, and he just, you know, he'll build, he normally doesn't do custom. He builds three or four guitars and he'll put them up for sale. But he's built some, you know, stuff for me that I, you know, I needed and stuff. But he can't play, he doesn't play. You know what I mean? His demo videos on the guitars are, are horrendous. But, uh, yeah. but if you get one, man, they're great guitars. You know, they're really yeah. great guitars. And so uh, I think it's really cool. The thing is, though, is that he's really passionate about it. And it seems like you are too, Ken. And uh, it's great to see the success of your company, though, because I remember when Reverend hit the market, you know, and you look back then and you look today, and uh, it seems like you've come a, an awful long way. Or it's, it's a work in progress. 
<laughs> Believe me. You know, yeah. But, yeah. but uh, yeah, we're making it happen. Yeah, well, so, yeah. I, I definitely wish you all the 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 best man and i'm glad that I'm, I'm glad you know that you've been selling some guitars you know during this time because i know that during this time it's been hard on a lot of players and that but you know a lot of people i talk to are still buying you know i know i have you know so yeah. uh, so that's good so congratulations yeah. on that what's going to be next yeah, you're going to build amps next no we got we have a thing <laughs> You know, yeah. and uh, like Naylor, Naylor started with amps, uh, the Naylor amplifiers in the nineties, right. and then um, and then there were some Reverend amps between ninety nine and two thousand three. But he, every time when, and then he also did some pedal stuff. Uh, he did some stuff with Bob Wheel from what was then Visual Sound. Uh, they did some pedals together that were great. But every time we ventured into something like that, it took the focus off of the guitars, and the guitars is what we yeah. really do. I mean, there's so many people making making amps and making really good amps, you know, and it's just, I don't want to play in that that field. There's just, you know, there's so much great stuff there. Now, I don't think we have anything to contribute, and we, we clearly still have something to contribute to the guitar world because the popularity is just growing, and so we just sort of stick with that, stick with that thing for now, and, uh, and, and uh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and just collect other people's amps. There you go. There you go. We have a great relationship with uh, car amplifiers out of uh, North Carolina. And Steve is a really good friend of ours, and we have a lot of his stuff lying around here. And uh, I make use of a lot of his stuff when I play out live and, and really enjoy, really think he has just got a great product and a great thing. Hard to tell. Expensive, for yeah. sure. Yeah. But, I'm, but, I mean, you get what you pay for. It is just yeah. killer stuff. Um, you know, and if you're never quite happy with that, amp, you know, if you're always like, oh, I just wish this had a little more of this or a little bit more of that or whatever, and then when you make the jump from spending $1,500 to $2,500 in an amplifier, you see where that was, you're like, oh, wow, that's yeah. pretty neat, you know, I and I, I just, I think that's pretty, I think it's pretty interesting, and um, I really like what he's doing, but even, but the amps are just like anything else, I mean, the Fender is just doing some crazy shit now. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I Those... Those uh, those deluxes and twins, those what do they call them? The virtual thing or whatever. Yeah, I, I know. What I you're mean, talking. they yeah, they sound great, dude. Yeah, like they really sound great. Like I haven't spent. My problem with a lot of that, with with some of that digital amp stuff, has always been. Like I plug into it and I think it sounds cool, but then after a half an hour, or an hour, if you do a gig or something like that, like my ears get tired. Yeah, and my ears don't get tired with the old tube amp, right? Yeah. Um, but I think Fender's done something interesting with those amps where they've put all of the processing, like, instead of, you know, we're going back to my delay pedal conversation, instead of putting all this processing power in something to make, to give you a million options, they used all of that processing power to make it sound like a deluxe, yeah. to make it sound like a twin. And it, it does. I mean, it's it's an interesting interesting piece of technology. So there's... There's a lot of really, really cool stuff out there. I mean, it, it, like I said, it's an amazing time to be a gearhead. Um, and then the sort of global economy that we've got going on now for, you know, the fact that the, all these countries are freely trading with one another and the stigma of dealing with countries in Asia and Europe and stuff is going away. Um, you're getting, you know, high-quality components uh, at very competitive prices and people are building stuff here. Uh, with components from other places, people are building stuff in other places with components from here, and the bottom line is everybody is doing better, and people are making some really high quality, really interesting, cool stuff all over the globe. And it's really, really you know, one of the this funny, funny side note before we before we end. I I really like to do dealer appearances. I really like to like go out and talk to people and have like Reverend Day. One of the fun things for me in playing with touring bands and bands that travel is I visit my dealers when I'm on the road and I will visit my dealers during the day like while we're out doing gigs at night or whatever or if I have a night off when I'm on the road I will set up an event at a dealer and you know sometimes five people come and sometimes you know 150 people come you just never really know what you're going to be in for and um, 
but I always enjoy talking to people. I have a little presentation that I'll do in front of people and take questions and shit, and it, I, it's a good time. Everywhere I go, there's like the pedal maker in town. <laughs> I I did a dealer event a few years ago in Birmingham, Alabama, and I, there's a little pedal guy there called Three Two Three Pedals, and he makes this like reverb. We were talking about reverb pedals, but he makes this like reverb pedal called the Ridges, and it does the thing that you're talking about, where it's really more a whole bunch of stack delays than it is a reverb, and it's really interesting. And I was like, I never heard anything quite like it. It's such a creative thing. And, you know, so I, like, had to have one. So I have all these, like, esoteric, weird little pedals from <laughs> these companies all over the place, you know. And uh, and it's 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 fun, man. It's exciting. It's cool that, 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 that you know, this guy in Birmingham has get, got super into it. And then he's able to get the components and the things to, to do his thing. I it, it, it interests me. It all interests me. So. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I tell you what, it's fun, man. Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've had a blast, you know, chatting with you here, Ken. Um, yeah, happy to come back. You know, I do this. I, I'm 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 always I'm always available. I'm fairly approachable. And um, yeah, if you ever want to have me back, if anybody, if you get people have like some questions or some comments, and you want to have me on again in six months to to you know talk about. If somebody says to you, hey, I wish you guys would have talked about this or that, you know, write that stuff down. I'm happy. To All right. That. So there you go. Ken Haas, president and CEO of Reverend Guitars. I want to thank Ken so much for uh, coming on Guitar Talk. Make sure you're going to reverendguitars.com. Uh, check out their lineup. They've got a great lineup of guitars. Um, I tell you what, I, I own one and uh, I'm a fan. I really am. I think they're well built. I think it's a good company, personally. And I think if you don't know something, you know, a whole lot about them, you should really check them out. So go to reverendguitars.com and that. Um, and I want to thank Ken, you know, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Now, just so you know, this coming week is a little different for us. On next Wednesday, we're doing a double show. Um, so we're going to have a show that's going to release at three and then another one that's going to release at 4 p.m. Central time, uh, at 3 p.m. I got Blacktop Mojo. I got the guitars for Blacktop Mojo. They're going to be on Chuck and Ryan and then, uh, Riley and Logan from the Georgia Thunderbolts will be on at 4 p.m. Central time. So it's going to be a really great week. I mean, those guys are all smoking hot guitar players, you know. Great bands, too. Oh, my Lord. And then the following Sunday, a week, yeah, a week from today, I got Barry Anderson of Elderwood Guitars in the U.K. This guy makes guitars out of his shop in the U.K., and they're really unique guitars, He's an extremely interesting guy. Um, it was a pleasure to talk to him. I'm telling you what, it was it was a real treat. So uh, make sure you're turning in this week for Blacktop Mojo, the Georgia Thunderbolts, and uh, Barry Anderson of Elderwood Guitars. And that uh, make sure you're following me on uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram at Jimmy Warren, Jimmy Warren Radio. Uh, also, if you know, uh, subscribe to our email list at jimmywarrenofficial.com and guitartalkofficial.com and support us on a monthly basis if you possibly can. We'd really appreciate it. We don't make no money doing this. We do this just for the fun of it. And that, but any little thing that comes in just helps cover any kind of expenses and costs and stuff like that. So until Wednesday with Blacktop Mojo and the Georgia Thunderbolts. I want to thank you for tuning in to Guitar Talk. My name is Jimmy Warren. You guys have a great week.